0: Oh, yo. For a sword I'm talking about. Check it out. Don't be soft. Open your mouth quick as a vop kicks motherfucker dog. This pops raw. Just like yo 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 check out this hot flow. I go ball the name of Ant. Ain't tight. This motherfucker eats straight your brain like TV static. Check out the funky 3D graphics. So just start telling me a little bit about your background. I read your bio on your oh, website okay. and it just seems like you have you have a lot going on in like something in texas in austin oh, texas yep. and then like a lot of like commissions i saw in the mm-hmm. midwest and that means you're kind of my first composer that has a lot going on in uh-huh. the midwest so oh, okay. i'm just kind of interested about that world and sure. do you come from there originally? no
1: i come from new jersey
0: what wait wait a second so we're to new jersey where are you from yeah, in new jersey i'm from princeton Really? Yeah,
1: I grew up there. and My family's from there. Are they Um, professors? No, they're not. My dad did work for the university, but he's not a professor. Yeah, we've lived there since I was about five.
0: What was it like growing up in a university town? Oh my
1: God, I loved it. It was amazing. I had so even though he wasn't a professor, I still got to get an ID card because he technically was a university employee. Yeah. And if you're a university employee, your family can get like ID cards. So I like as like a middle school kid, I would like go to the computer lab at Princeton University and like play Warcraft or something. <laughs> really? Yeah, it was great. And then I would go to like the library. You know, the li- library is like at Yale. It's like this amazing, huge structure and similar at Princeton. But Try to imagine confronting that as like a, an eleven-year-old. It just completely blew my mind. Like these labyrinthine like hallways. Under actually, a lot of the Princeton Library is underground, and so I would just wander around the stacks, and it was great. I, I, I my eighth-grade um, term paper was on the fall of ancient Rome, and I researched it at the uh, university library. It was really fun. Did
0: everybody else <laughs> in your class have access to like that library?
1: Uh, no, I mean nobody did because I got I got access because my dad worked at the university, you know. So. Yeah. I mean, it's true. There were a lot of students there who also were children of university employees in one way or another. So I'm sure some people did. But I really loved growing up in the university town. It was really fun. Yeah.
0: Did you were you like one day I will be at a university like this or oh, was just
1: th- th- Yeah, that's a funny question. I think that I always assumed I would. And I don't think I posed it as like um I don't think I, I don't think I thought about it consciously. But in hindsight, I think even by middle school, I probably felt that I would just end up in a university because that was my home basically. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just what I knew and yeah, I think that actually not consciously, but I definitely think it was in my head.
0: So you're going to, you're going to go for university. I mean, those are harder and harder to find now. Yeah. Like, okay, you're choosing to be, you're choosing to be secure, but then like in, in doing that, you're also choosing to not exactly know where you're going to end up. Yeah. Yeah. And then also like, Okay, it takes away time from everything else, which is fine. It's like any other you know job, but you don't get to be in New York. Yeah, well, yeah.
1: even getting a teaching job is 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 not a guarantee. You know, even if that teaching job was in you know, rural Wisconsin, no, I mean I love Wisconsin great place i'm not trying to knock on rural wisconsin but i'm saying anywhere any job anywhere. are you afraid
0: wisconsin is going to hear this like yeah, the mayor I, I actually
1: am i have done a lot of work in wisconsin i was in mm. madison twice last year so the mayor of madison any of my fans thing. in wisconsin you guys rock no <laughs> <laughs> um but what i'm simply trying to say is no matter all the teaching jobs are hard to get so that's not i know that's not security now and it's actually very complicated because you know i'm married now, and. and um it's i can't answer these questions just for myself anymore the question of where i'm going to be it's just not all about me yeah i was Um, talking to jacob about this
0: and it's not yeah it's almost really kind of not fair to the other person no yeah
1: so part of me of course would love to stay in new york although i have to admit if you're going to really ask me i don't think i'm a city guy i think actually maybe it's because i grew up in the suburbs i mean you we are we are who we are So I, my, if you were to say, what's my ideal composer life, it would probably be living in like a town in the Hudson Valley, anywhere from an hour to two hours from New York, having a house and essentially being in the country, but having very easy access to the city. I think that's actually more of what my ideal living situation would be. That's totally,
0: that's totally suburb life.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. But that's what I grew up in. I don't necessarily want to live in like Princeton, like that kind of place, like I actually probably would like slightly more rural, maybe, um, but basically suburb life. You know, like I don't want to be in like a uh, you know like a development or like a you know that kind of thing. But yeah, basically, you know, take a train to get in the city. I think I actually, I just think I like that. You know, I like the quiet. I like the space. I really like the space. I mean, I, you know, this is a nice apartment, but we haven't you haven't seen my studio. It's a nice. I am grateful for the studio that I have in New York. Even to have that space in New York is very lucky. But it's,
0: like, no, it's impossible to. Get I know, but
1: here. like I want. Way more space. I don't know if you've seen, but I have. I have so many instruments here. In that other room, I have a double bass. I have a cello. I have a violin behind the couch. I have a guitar. I have an electric bass in there. I have an electric guitar, which Chris Cerrone is actually borrowing. I have a lap steel, and that's not even counting some of the instruments I have in my parents' house in New Jersey. I have a Fender Rhodes there. I've got a you know baby grand piano just waiting for me to have space. You play all these instruments and. Varying degrees, and I, you know, I, have, I have a PA system from when I was playing in a rock band in high school. I mean, I have all this shit, and I would love nothing more than to have a big-ass room where I could just lay it all out and just have it there, but that's absolutely impossible in New York. You know? So I think part of my real desire to not necessarily be in New York is that I like the space, and I like having all these things around. It's just harder for me to do that here.
0: Yeah, and just, you would just want the close proximity, proximity yeah, to which, the city because the suburbs is essentially cultureless. Yeah, exactly.
1: No. And I love this city. Oh my god. I mean, I I it's an endless sea of opportunity and incredible people to work with. So many of the people that I work with, I has been possible because I live here. And the way that I work with them has has only been possible because they're so close. I mean, just the ability to You know, at the drop of a dime, go over to you know some bass player's house or violinist's house and just like try shit out, and or just hanging out, and it's just it's 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 just so many great things can happen, you know. So,
0: but there's also kind of a there's also kind of a contradiction between like the reason you have a lot of things going on here is because people see you all the time, you're Mm. on the minds of people, you know. And then once you know once you leave, it's like you're gone, and like there's isn't there always the fear that people will forget about you, and then like because you've decided to let's like move to town XYZ in upstate New York two hours and teach at this university. Now you've really kind of sacrificed like the artistic activity that you've got into this thing into the first place. You know, like you didn't, you didn't listen to, I don't don't know what you listened to that made you want to be a composer, but you didn't listen to that and be like, I can't wait to teach that music in a university. You wanted to be that person.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't see that as an opposition, um, teaching at a university and being able to be an artist, but that's a whole other issue. But I think getting to what you're saying actually raises something that I I do believe in and is worth talking about, which is simply that as I've gone through my short life as trying to be a creative artist – I've discovered that the most valuable thing has been the relationships that I've made. And I've lived in a lot of different places, um, and I have a small group of people that I keep working with, and, and distance has not really affected it. For example, I have, uh, there's a cellist I met in Austin, and now she lives in Canada, and we have a project that we do. Um, every few years and with all these musicians in Canada and, but we go back to it. And even though we're far and we, even though everything we do when we organize is um, over emails and Skype and whatnot, we come back to it because the relationship is strong. That initial bond, that initial connection that we both value that is not going away. And so, yes, it's true. I'm sure I would lose some work by not being in New York because I wouldn't be in the hubbub and the buzz and there would be a degree of of you know not being as active in, in the scene, whatever that means. But I think the, the working relationships that are really good, where there truly is a connection, I don't think those would suffer because when you find someone that you work well with, you don't let that go because it's unique and it's really valuable. And um, I would hope, I mean, that that even if I left that the handful of people that I have really connected with I could still do projects with them and I mean I have been able to do that in the past and I hope I would be able to continue to do that in the future wherever I end up you know
0: yeah I you know I always have the fear of this especially now that I live in Berlin mm-hmm. and like I'm not even talking about with other composers that I know I also am talking about like something as fundamental and basic as like my family I think a real fear that I have is this long term decay mm. that you don't even notice it mm-hmm. because it's so incremental. That's like a big thing about like not constantly being there. You know, like that's a big part of a personal relationship. And it's almost a way of a big part of a professional relationship is that you're just around them all the time. Like you're mm-hmm. not even you're not even thinking about it. It could be something as dumb as like running into each other on the street randomly or like drinking a beer in a bar or watching a you know watching yeah. like a TV show stuff that has nothing to do with professional yeah. things but just like that human habit yeah. creates a creates a bond that strengthens the professional
1: sure yeah no that's that i hear what you're saying there's there's some truth to that but you can still you have agency even at a distance i, I mean okay maybe berlin is tough cuz it's like across the ocean and in many time zones but like we're talking like if i live a couple hours out of new york that's not an issue. I mean, honestly, it takes me a couple hours to get to some places in New York. You know, I just last week was was teaching at Manhattan College. It took me nearly two hours. It's the end of the one train. But that's New York City. You know, so if, if I'm within a couple hours, I just don't think it's an issue whatsoever. I think what you're talking about becomes an issue if you're further. If you ask, the further away you get, it becomes more an issue. And, you know, yes, it, it won't be... It's not the same. You don't have those personal interactions. But if you put an effort into it, if you commit to projects you can still work on things i mean I, I i've done it you know i i i'm doing it i've got two projects coming up in may one is with this group of of canadian musicians we're going to do a concert the end of May. I'm putting together a full program. You know, I'm going to write some new things, do some arrangements. And we're doing this all at a distance. We're going to get together two weeks before the show and spend an intensive two weeks working on things. And I'm also doing a project in Chicago in early May with people that I don't even really know. But the point is, it's at a distance. Like, I do a lot of things at a distance. I mean, you just have to figure out how to make it work. And I do this thing in Austin where I don't live in Austin. We've put on... This is our third year coming up where we're doing an all-day marathon event. And we just... Are disciplined about you know the emails and the skypes and all these things and we just make it happen you know it's not the same i agree but you if you put in the effort you can you can still do stuff
0: does it feel as personal the um, collaboration maybe not like of course the issue right it's so interesting yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. Um, okay well i'm just gonna be out with it because i don't think this is going to be news to a lot of my sleeping giants but in a in a weird way some of my collaborations like with the Austin folks or the Canadian folks have been, I felt, more personal than some of my Sleeping Giant collaborations. Now, what I mean is I think it has to do with how Sleeping Giant works. We're all friends, but we're all very strong personalities. We're all very individual. And when we collaborate, it's almost like a more of a like, not a meeting of the minds, but a clashing (laughs) of the minds. Yeah, You know what I mean? So I don't necessarily think the communication is actually that good in a way i mean i think we make up for it because we kind of make it our strength you know because like the whole point is we're all going to just be ourselves and that's going to be the strength of when we do something is like having these six individual things but like as far as a collaborative process i kind of find it to be a little bit dysfunctional and that's i find ironic because they're the people closest to me in in terms of distance i see them all the time we hang out all the time but with these people in austin and in canada that i've worked with I think just because of the way of our chemistry of our personality like it's just a better conversation. Yeah, and it has actually no relation whatsoever to how close they are. It's just a purely a personality thing. Which is what I mean about why when you find the personalities that really gel and that then it's just like that is like gold to me like that is just pure gold.
0: Which one do you prefer? The dysfunctional relationship where it's a clash of minds or something where you are on the same page? Right away, you have the same goals and then it's just a matter of you figuring out the best way to get there rather than trying to find out where you're going.
1: Well, I'm not going to give you an answer that you really will probably want to hear, which is because I'm not going to give you a straight answer because I can't, which is that there are really pluses and minuses to both. And at different phases in the process, I I will wish – like when Sleeping Giant was writing this piece, Histories, which was I think our first real collaborative work, um, there were parts – of the process of that, that were incredibly frustrating because it felt like there was no communication. However, at the end, it was really awesome because it somehow came together and it was kind of incredible that it came together because for a while, I was like, "Oh man, this is gonna be a disaster!" Like, we're, you know what I mean? I, we're, yeah. we're we're just not working. Like, we are like not working together. Like, yeah. this is like people talking at each other. Do you know, each of other. course I know what you mean. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> okay. So yeah. there's that flip side where it's like, well, it worked out. So something good happened. And but while it was happening, <laughs> there <it> was, <laughs> was some really difficult moments. Yeah, and, you know. So, yeah.
0: but I work with this dance troupe in Berlin, and we're much, 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 much more like the sleeping giant. We have different visions coming together, clashing, fighting disaster. Yeah. And it certainly creates high tensions. But I just remember this one moment where I was having like this hour long argument with this choreographer about just basic fundamental things of what was going to happen maybe a week and a half before the performance. I'm also I was also performing in it and was really, really intense. And at the the end of it, I just kind of looked at her and I was like, well, you know, something's going to (laughs) happen. And like, that's kind of what it is. It's like. Well, we agreed that something's going to happen. And it's amazing how much something can be coherent to an audience member, someone taking it in. But literally, their opinion is of the thing that from the very beginning you had a unified vision clearly, because then you wouldn't have been able to do this thing that they were impressed with. But at the same time, it's like, no, it was like pretty much like a a fight to the death till, (laughs) you know, till like Showtime or something like that. Was it like that for this histories?
1: Histories thing? sometimes there were some moments where there's some strong disagreements but i would say in that case it was less like we were fighting it was more like radio silence like we have we'd have these bursts of group activity where it was talking about what is this piece going to be what are we doing what's the plan what's the idea blah 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 we'd have this burst and we'd kind of figure out some stuff but then it would just be like silence you know like nobody like and, and, there, and there was this feeling of we're all working in a vacuum And so I would always wish there was more dialogue, more communication, because I'm like, I don't know how this is fitting together. I don't know what this is, you know, but we're going to all have to write our things. So for that, I think the issue would be more simply fundamental communication, like just not really talking enough about it. But it somehow worked out, like, I guess maybe our initial jumping off points we strong enough, you know, what like we some we came to a good enough initial jumping off point that it didn't matter. Maybe.
0: Yeah. At, I mean, it, it works out because, like I said, at the end of the day, something has to happen. Yeah, yeah that's a part yeah, of it, yeah, too. Yeah. yeah, definitely. Now I'm just talking personally and like oh, asking sure. whether or not this also applies to this collaboration. Was there also like did someone lose? Did someone back? <laughs> did someone did someone have to, like, give up what there was about and just kind of give up what they thought was? Don't you not don't to be specific? Yeah. 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 Uh, definitely. Definitely.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't think it was ever happened in a dramatic way, but there were definitely, and I can't remember them at this point because it sort of all was receded into the distant past. Uh, distant past. Um, but there were definitely ideas that that were thrown out or that people put forward and then they didn't work. And and we, we changed things a lot, you know, even between there was a performance at, with ACJW in February, and then there was another performance in the spring, a couple in the spring, and it changed a lot between the two ones. You know, we we had this whole uh, structure that we ended up doing, which we split movements up and inserted different movements within them, because Ted wrote three short pieces, Andrew wrote four short pieces, and then Jacob, Chris, and I wrote standalone pieces and for Jacob and my piece for the spring performance we split mine in half we split ours in half and then inserted the shorter Ted and Andrew ones so we kind of created this sort of woven structure which never was intended and it was cool some things didn't work we're going to probably change it like I think we're going to make my piece uh complete and not split it up because it didn't seem to work that well but yeah there were definitely ideas like they kind of most of the struggles were about how it's going to (laughs) end Actually, there were a lot of different ideas about the ending, but I don't remember what the losers were, but there definitely were things that lost.
0: You had to explain it now to me. I oh, think I kind how I, the project worked? Yeah, yeah I, well, well what it was. actually what it was, because I think I remember it, but obviously and like my mom who listens to this like, oh. <laughs> yeah, uh, isn't going to know. Yeah. Okay. Know so bad. the idea
1: was to write a companion piece to Stravinsky's L'histoire de Soldat, and we came up with this concept, which we called Histories which was essentially each of us would respond to L'histoire in our own way, taking some element of it as a starting point. We didn't necessarily specify what that would be, but it ended up being that usually we would take actual material, like a phrase or a chord or maybe, you know, just a very short, in my case, I took just very, very short snippets. And then we would kind of riff on it, take take that as our starting point and develop our works from that. And that was the premise. And the collection ended up being about 50 minutes and 12 movements. And all each of us responded to the Stravinsky in very different ways. And so that's kind of also the history It's a play on the title, obviously, of L'histoire, of course, but it's also referring to the fact that each of us has our own very uh individual relationship to the piece so our own kind of history with the piece and i think it's reflected in our works which are which are really different
0: i mean that's a pretty broad co- i mean i'm not i'm not saying it's like it's a good concept but it's also a broad concept why wouldn't that work it did work but i mean where where was the conflict oh
1: just in the details you know uh, oh i think i should go first
0: yeah or i or think we I... should
1: end it this way we should do this thing where everyone walks off stage or we should, you know, let's take the opening of the opening March and play it for like a minute and a half. And then it's going to distort into something weird. And then this thing's going to happen or there are just like things like that, you know, very detailed things. Actually, there wasn't really much disagreement in terms of the actual content of our pieces. It was really more about how do we put it all together? What is the order going to be?
0: Did you write it in isolation?
1: Yeah. We wrote our th- things in isolation. Although one of the cool things, I think this made it a much stronger piece, is that So in the, in the February performance, it only had four of us, Jacob, Andrew, Chris, and myself. And then Timo and Ted added theirs contributions for the spring performance. But what that did was it allowed Timo and Ted to sort of see what we had already done. And I think that s- influenced their approach. And I think that helped make it a more unified Experience.
0: Oh man, I just realized I'm gonna have probably gonna have to play that recording now on on this. No, thing. really. Thing. Well, we just talked about it for like. Two, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, we can yeah. probably do that. Okay, I'm not going to make you label yourself right now, but like, how would you? How would you say you fit into the landscape here?
1: Uh, in New York, or just in the world?
0: Well, in the states, or if oh. you want, I mean, expand it as much as you want.
1: Um, I don't know. I mean, I think I'm like a lot of composers, my of my age generation. I do a lot of different things. I write for, I do write for orchestra. I write chamber music, choral music. I basically just do wherever I can get a gig. You know, so coming up, I'm writing percussion trio right now for three groups, one, one in L.A., one in Toronto, one in New York. After that, I'm writing an orchestra piece for Mount Holyoke College. After that, I'm writing a piece for um, Ensemble Del Niente in Chicago. And after that, I'm going to Winnipeg for a choir thing. It's So, I mean... I I couldn't, it's hard for me to answer that question because those are four things I just listed that are totally different. Each one is totally different in terms of the the kind of thing it is and the sort of culture. The percussion trio they're young groups. Some of, most of them are either still in school or just out of school. The college orchestra is a totally different world. That's something I have done a fair amount. Last last year I did a collaboration with Hunter College in New York, and I've also worked with Bard College or their orchestra as well. So that's totally different. College Orchestra and Dal I mean, they're sort of just like a kind of hardcore new music group. Yeah, you know, no, yeah, and yeah. that's which is a totally different scene. And then the Winnipeg thing, man, that is I don't even know what that's gonna be. That is gonna be some kind of weird hodgepodge thing. This guy has a chamber twelve voice chamber choir. They specialize in Renaissance music, but the lead director is a composer. And this is with these Canadian musicians that I'm involved with. And um we basically have been hired to essentially be a part of the program and he didn't really specify how but we're sort of we're working together to de- to develop what the program will be and then to contribute to it that's one of the most sort of vague projects that i've, that I've been involved with so that who knows what that's going to be but we're going to go go there and do something
0: <laughs> that's pretty vague like we're going to go there and do something like
1: well okay um, no, no no
0: i mean like that's i mean that's fine yeah
1: no um it's just early stages so this group that I work with in Canada, we're called the. We call ourselves the Correction Line Ensemble, and it's six musicians. Four of us are conservatory trained. You know, I, I play piano. The other, there's a violinist, there's a cellist, there's a, a percussionist. We're all, you know, read music, very well trained, that kind of thing. And then uh, two of the other two are singer-songwriters, and they don't even read music, but they're really great singer-songwriters who have been playing and touring around Canada for decades, and they have their own, their whole other world that they have and a whole other scene, a whole other audience. But through various personal connections, we know each other and we decided to put this group together. And we first did this three years ago and then we did a tour two years ago in Canada. And it was really cool because what we did was we put together a program which was two forty-five minute sets, and and the whole concept was to in, to sort of weave together all these different genres. We would we would do arrangements of the singer-songwriters' so- music, new stuff that I would write, pieces from like standard repertoire. We did some Bach and Britain and Bartok, and then a couple of contemporary Canadian composers um, as well. And it was just this. It was all, it was uh, like this sort of mixtape sort of thing where you just we just move between but back to back but it's kind of like more of a rock show and that's where we played we played mainly at clubs and and bars and then a few schools and church kind of things so it's an interesting group and then one example of of how strange it it, that is is that we did a a, an arrangement of benjamin Britten, the horn tenor horn serenade but we did an arrangement for our ensemble which was piano violin cello marimba electric guitar and the two singers now the guitars can't read music so he just basically played a drone the whole time, and the singer she can't read music, but she learned that part by ear and ended up doing a great job. And it's like she sang it. Well, you know, normally it's for tenor. Peter Pears, very classical, blah, blah blah. I mean, she totally nailed the notes, but she sang it as if she was like a folk singer or something. But it was really cool, actually. But, but if, but if the
0: guitarist can't read, I mean, why, why did you just why did you just make a drone for him if that's, he can't that's read
1: exactly it? what we did? We gave him a drone. No,
0: that's no, I mean, why did you make a? Oh, because he wanted to be a part of it. It's either you can read music or drone?
1: Uh, no, it, no it, it's more complicated than that. I mean, it wasn't just like, oh, this is the only thing you can do. It was actually right for the music. I mean, it, it really – that piece is actually an extremely static piece, and it really fit, and it was a really nice timbre. And honestly, I mean, we were putting together an hour, an hour and a half show in about two weeks, and there simply wasn't time to – teach him something more complicated and it just worked you know
0: yeah i think what i was asking before is like i think i asked asked you a poorly worded question about like where do you fit in the landscape because i think you just completely answered the way i wanted it to be answered which was that you're making an adjustment to every situation that is thrown at you absolutely as a composer and there and what i meant is there are composers that don't do that and they kind of stick their feet into the mud and they say, this is what I am. And then either, you know, the world eventually through various trends and culture changes moves towards them or moves away from them and they just become, you know, irrelevant. But you seem to be more of the guy that, listen, I'm a practical minded freelance composer. I can do a lot of things. I have a lot of skills. You're the fox. You're not the hedgehog. You yeah, know what I, I mean? think that's probably true. Yeah do you enjoy that is there a plus of minus of being that do you sometimes feel like you've given a you've been a situation has been thrown at you at some way where you're like you know it's more of the sleeping giant situation I was talking about where it's like you know there's so many things going on right here I just had to pragmatically find a way to make this work and that's my specialty and then I had to kind of remove any type of sensitivity that I've been developing over the years that says this makes me rob you know what i mean
1: mhm i think why one of the reasons i like existing the way i do is that in my working practice there is no opposition between being myself and fitting into a situation i i just make choices i don't i don't you know arrange christmas carols for a pops orchestra you know i don't write Generic movies for a, scores for a horror film, you yeah, know what I mean. True. So That's, I, I yeah, choose yeah. situations where I can be sure. I have to adapt. I don't approach arranging a Benjamin Britten song for the ensemble I just described. I don't approach that in the same way I would approach collaborating with a, a baroque, a period instrument ensemble. They're different, mm-hmm. um, but I I find ways to to be myself and to do things that I think are interesting. In in all the different contexts, if I can't do that, then it is just then it's no fun, and and I don't get paid enough (laughs) to not have fun. That's true. So yeah, yeah, I didn't mean
0: it in the way that okay. So the extreme example of what I described would be some guy who is writing the jingle for a tampon commercial, right? Something like that.
1: But he wants to really be like Stockhausen or something. Yeah, but he would rather yeah. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah, that's really not at all what's going on with me. (laughs) Yeah, Um, but,
0: (laughs) (laughs) but do you grade situations? To like you're like oh this is the perfect thing to do this idea that I was thinking about for the past five years have been and have been developing in my head like something like that happened to me yeah. recently they just gave me this it was like here's the instrumentation and it was like the instrumentation that I had an idea for this specific sound that I've been thinking about for a while and they're like write us a piece and it was so open-ended and they had already kind of knew me that I was like, Oh, this is the perfect thing to try out this thing that I've been wanting to try out. Mm -hmm. But sometimes I get situations that this is the theme of the concert, base it off of Bartok music, for strings, percussion and celeste. And then that idea that I've been so eager to use has to be put on the back burner. And all of a sudden I have to kind of throw together my sensitivities and Use it to pragmatically solve this problem of the theme of whatever the concert is. Mm-hmm. Do you ever get situations like that where you're like, "This is perfect," and mm-hmm. then sometimes you get a situation where you're like, "All right, I'm good enough, and I know myself well enough to be able to like fit myself into this, mm-hmm. you know, into this situation."
1: I absolutely get both, and I, I you know, I try to make them both work. I, I really don't like doing things that I don't want to do, and if there is a situation, I, I, at all cost, I, I avoid the thinking that you just just, just described where it, where where the logic is, oh, okay, I just need to make it work. You know, I can't really do what I want to do. I really avoid that thinking at, at all costs because almost always there is a creative solution that allows you to have it all. I've never really framed it that way before, but I think it's true. I think in any collaborative situation, there's almost always an option that you probably haven't thought of yet that um, will allow you to do something that you're really excited about and do whatever it is that needs to be done for the creative situation so for example i just did this project with a as i was saying a period instrument ensemble and with a, the the original concert you know this I, I this happens to me a lot where i just I, I just say yes to things and i don't really think about what that's going to mean and so this was a case where this guy who directs the group he was conducting a piece of mine actually an orchestra piece and he also happens to be this period instrument player and he started talking, you know, I have got this group and we've always thought it'd be really cool to work with a composer and I thought that was great too. I have a background in early music and I, I, when I was in Texas, I spent a number of years singing in a semi-professional early music group and I just absolutely love that sound and that world and so I just sort of was like, yes, that's great. I, I totally want to do that. Let's do it having absolutely no idea how or what that would be. And then he's like, well, you know, 2011 is the 300th anniversary of the publication of Vivaldi's Lestro Armonico. And I just sort of nodded, pretending that I knew what he was talking about because I didn't want to feel stupid. But like, um, <laughs> I was like, I oh, that cool. Half my life is yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Half my
0: life is like, And that, especially when I, like, 99% of my life was that when I first moved to Germany. Oh, so, yeah. It's just like, just learn yeah. how to nod and like, vertical for most of the time, and then when you're in a situation where you're like, oh, God, this is going (laughs) to not turn out well, then you'd go horizontal. Yeah, Yeah. right, right, right,
1: right. So anyway, so what I've learned is, you know, that Lester Armonico is a collection of violin concerto opus 3 that uh, made made him really famous on the world stage. And, you know, if you play Suzuki, you'll recognize a lot of those. They're just totally ubiquitous works. Anyway, his idea was he wanted to do a concert where he would take – can charity from that collection and then mingle them with some stuff that I was going to write. And I just was like, yeah. And then I didn't think about it for like a year. And then I started to think about it and I was like, wait, wait a second. Like, this is really weird. Like here are these like pieces that are, everyone's heard. And it's Vivaldi. Do I even really like Vivaldi? Oh my God. Like what I'm going to do. And I was a little nervous, but then, but then I just sort of didn't care. I guess a lot of, at a certain point I, I just don't care what they're going to think. And then I just try to do something, and I ended up doing something that was pushed my language in a direction it had never been before, inter- compositionally, and it was something that I was really happy with, and and I think really pushed them too, that doing things that they aren't usually doing, and it but it somehow fit in, it somehow worked, worked with the program, and I think the reason it worked was because from the very first beginning of it I sort of made a rule for myself which was that I am not going to try to fit in with Vivaldi the point of this is not for me to sound like Vivaldi or to any way compliment him I think what I ended up doing in a weird way does compliment it but not in an obvious way you know so I guess what I'm getting at is that I just try not I just don't worry about like the question of making it work I don't worry about it so much in a conceptual, artistic way. I worry about it in a practical way. You know, can they play it? Like, yeah, yeah obviously. of course. Yeah, yeah. That, that I mean, you got to do that. But in terms of like, will, is the style or is the aesthetic or that, you know, these kind of questions, I'm not going to worry about that. Like, basically, my thinking is, you know what, if they wanted to ask me to do this, then they must have been for a reason and um i'm just gonna do what i want to do and that's yeah. why they that's why they're asking me you know,
0: they didn't like close their eyes and open the composer phone book and like pull yeah, a thing. exactly they're like, they're like he'd be good at this we trust yeah. him and then because of that you're like oh yeah okay i mean they trust me so yeah it'll somehow work out can you i mean maybe, maybe you can't but can you somehow formalize how do you think it complemented it i'll play that piece because i heard oh it. sure yeah, yeah, yeah. um
1: well you know okay I think it complements it in opposition in oppositions, um, and it's kind of how I thought of the piece. I called it. It's called um, Night Scenes from the Ospedale, and I have this. Whole, I constructed this whole sort of meta narrative, which to some people is irrelevant to the music, but to a lot of people, it really actually was a way for them to access it. By a lot of people, I usually mean you know like people who don't know contemporary music. But
0: it was a meta narrative that was in a program though, that yeah. the old lady sitting. Oh, maybe exactly. she wasn't old, but yeah. But yeah. but
1: yeah, that kind of thing. And actually, that narrative was constructed after. I wrote the piece, which is irrelevant, but it's true. Um, Anyway, so the narrative basically is that Vivaldi taught at these places called the Ospedale, these conservatories, blah, blah, blah. And he wrote many of these pieces for the students there. And so my thinking was, I am going to write a collection of pieces that essentially evokes the nighttime at this Ospedali, the conservatory and i, I you know, i'm talking about it as if that's what i thought of when i started writing the pieces it's not true um because i wrote the pieces before i wrote it but post rationalized it as saying if these are nocturnal if these are not what happens at the daytime it could be anything really and so my music is really atmospheric really quiet has lots of um noises and scratches and and it uses the instruments in ways that vivaldi absolutely never would have used and or probably even thought of i mean to use and so it's in this opposition that i think it complements it and also it's a it's a taka it's all sort of woven together so it's this idea of the vivaldi's are these exuberant extroverted pieces you know daytime pieces and then my pieces are very introverted atmospheric quiet and it's going between the two which i think is really interesting and part of what really worked for me when i first heard it done was you would have a vivaldi and you'd have my piece which is between three or four each one is between three or four minutes long and then the next vivaldi would start a taka and it was like totally blew my mind when the vivaldi began because i had never heard vivaldi in that way you know because you have like three four minutes of like you know strings glissandi and you know some scratching noises and like melodies emerging from this texture and whatever this kind of stuff then it kind of that works itself out and it and it happens and then all of a sudden it's like vivaldi (laughs) and it's just like whoa where did this come from
0: somehow works as a unified language so you must have taken material i heard material from both yeah like like there was was definitely a working with Mm. yeah did you it really is just in my head i'm just reading into it totally in
1: your head there was absolutely zero intentional material taken i i I thought of key relationships i thought okay this next one's going to be an a minor so or g major so mine's going to be kind of have that tonal center Um, but other than that there was no intentional material taken whatsoever i mean i think that i do this a lot i immersed myself in vivaldi i listened to it a lot i played through it a lot in in scores and so that sound was in my head so you poisoned your well i poisoned my well and i Uh. tend to my way of working always starts not always but oftentimes starts from a very improvisatory place um I, i play keyboard instruments and so i i'm oftentimes getting ideas with my fingers at the keyboard and I think I'm just the kind, the way I, I work, if I'm going to listen to something a lot, that's going to find its way into whatever I'm doing. But I, I you know, I, I always like to think my weaknesses are my greatest strength. So the fact that I'm not some genius musical mind who can just repeat something they heard perfectly on the piano after they've heard it one time, I actually, you know, it's very imperfect, but I kind of, I think it's just just imperfect enough that it does. It's not, it's not, it's not obviously Vivaldi. But, like, it's clearly, I think actually it's actually great the way you, you you thought that maybe I had taken some material. That's actually just about as much Vivaldi as I would like to have in it. Yeah. And I think it reflects sort of the way it was processed.
0: And yeah, that's, that's you accidentally having some, like, fragment of it subconsciously in your yeah. head while you're, you're yeah. doing your thing. And the
1: other actually really interesting thing that happened with that piece and the way it came about is... Um, so I had mentioned earlier that I have all these string instruments and I don't play any of them. Um, they're all... The bass is my little sister. She played it when she was growing up. The violin is also another... Another sister is of mine who played it when she was growing up. Cello is my wife's who she played it when she was growing up. None of those people play those instruments anymore and I have since appropriated them. But... I got a lot of my ideas for that particular piece by playing them and by recording myself playing them. And the thing is, you know, with a lot of um, so-called contemporary string techniques, not being trained is sometimes really useful in being able to execute them correctly.
0: Do you, you know you know Scott Yeah, Yeah. I love his string music. Mm-hmm. He has instruments lying around the house too. His pieces are him playing... The string instruments badly well by string players. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a great. I mean, that's a great way to work. I mm-hmm. I try and work like when whenever, whenever I can get my hand on an instrument, I get yeah. my hand on an instrument. Yeah. And okay, I have no idea what I'm doing. Yeah, but if you studied like the basic. Like simple fingering, which you have to as a composer in orchestration class sure. anyway. Yeah. Then uh, you can actually create something original and idiomatic by accident. Yeah. yeah. Totally. Yeah.
1: yeah. There is an entire an entire movement of that Vivaldi piece. I I, I wouldn't want you to play this because I don't want to release it. But I have a demo that I re- re- created you know just in my own studio using Logic and a microphone, and it's really close to the final product. And a lot of the score was just essentially transcribing what I had done. And so it's like I would do it in layers and, you know, I'd play, um, yeah, like a drone on the the string. And it was just, you know, I can't, I wouldn't even play other notes, but just my terrible bow pressure would create really interesting effects. And then when you notate that, it's kind of cool. And then I added a melody, so-called melody on top of it. And yeah, I can't play anything outside of first position. And what I do play in first position is totally out of tune. But I notated that. And that sounded really cool because it's like vaguely in the key that I was trying to sort of be in, but it's like microtonal and it sort of slides around because I can't find the notes, you know, but like it created this like melody and this sound that I thought was really awesome. So I just... Put it in there.
0: You're just notating your dumb fingers, yeah, and then totally, yeah, and then you give it to someone with smart fingers, and they're like, and you know, and they can do it. They can replicate it perfectly because their fingers know how to do that. Exactly, yeah,
1: Yeah. and you know, and a lot of stuff in that piece is directly from that, and uh, and then I've used that in some other pieces um, as well, and I, I I really like that approach. It's really great, and then I have then I find myself in the really entertaining situation of having to teach these highly trained individuals, how to do the things which um, I, I just, you know, do because I don't know how to play the instrument. You know, it's just really funny. Like a lot of the pressure techniques, like if you hold the bow in the way you're supposed to hold the bow, it's harder to get a good scratch sound. But if you hold it with a club fist, which is the way I naturally hold the bow, yeah, yeah. it's easy. You get that yeah. scratch right away. Yeah. You know, just a little pressure with your club fist. You're good to go. But if you got your nice French or German technique or whatever, you know, it's just not going to happen. And it's funny, actually, you know, because I'm like, no, actually, you need to like. <laughs> yeah,
0: like an, you, you need to hold this bow like an awkward composer nerd yeah. who has just picked it up for the first time. Yeah, exactly. So. Sometimes, because I, like I said, I, tr- I try and work like that all the time i th- i it's just a great way to work and it also gives you a sense of confidence and consistency you're not like i wonder what it's going to be it's Dang. now, now it turns out like i know it's possible because yeah, I did it. Yeah. So it gives you confidence in what the sound is. But it also, it's like, why did I study orchestration? You know, <laughs> well, like, I really had to learn the range of the flute. And then all of a sudden, 98%, well, I don't know. Who knows what's actually in the back of your head that you're using, that you learned yeah. that you're not consciously saying, I know the range of the flute. Yeah. But all of a sudden, the essence of what you're doing mm. is just based on a vocational experience mm. that mm. you gave yourself. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like. I mean, do you ever think that? Or, no, because
1: yeah. um, that's just a part of what I do. I mean, there's a lot of music that I write where it's not necessary. It's just more maybe more standard orchestrational approach. And and when I'm in that when I'm writing that kind of a passage, yeah, I, I draw on my my technique, my skills, whatever. I draw on that, and I'm glad I have them. You know, so it really depends. You know, and actually, I really um, am interested in, in exploring mixtures of that. You know, so. Um, I'm writing this piece for Mount Holyoke College, and one of my goals for that is to... Because when you're working with amateur players, you have to be really careful, because you know you can't give them things that are too difficult in certain ways. And um, technically, I think you have to write things that are idiomatic. That's only what they're comfortable with. But you can also give them really adventurous things that are not necessarily... Difficult in a really technical ensemble way, but you know maybe be like play in this way and just go you know like this this strange you know technique, and you know just start there and stop there, and there's no complicated rhythms, so you can to so kind of both things are are easily accessible by that kind of a group, so in that piece, which I haven't really started writing, but which I've been thinking about, I think I'm going to be using a lot of both of those skills. You know, there'll definitely be passages that where it's like really important that it's just a well-voiced chord and that the flute line is, in fact, in a good part of the register. Because, especially for an amateur flutist, like if it's in a hard part of the register, it's going to, going to sound like shit. Like it's really not even yeah, like the kind of shit yeah. you want it to sound like, you know? So I'm going to. I think I'm going to have to use both of those skills. Both will be important to create what I want to create. But
0: also, technically, just getting back to like you playing a string instrument i'm sure to a lot of people that sounds like like what if you use the fact that a flute player at a, a certain developmental stage just happens to sound like shit in a high register or mm, low register you use that yeah like what if what if you use yeah. like could you could you convince people of that sound could you use the shittiness of like 12 year olds playing to like somehow sell it and make it work like oh it's supposed to be out of tune, yeah. and not always together.
1: I mean, I think you could. Um, I think it would be hard. I think you could. I mean, I think it's a balance. You know, I think about the psychology of performers a lot, and I think a performer likes to feel that what they're doing has a kind of purpose, has a kind of intention behind it. That it's not, you know, even if if it's sounding wrong or sounding bad or whatever, it has a reason, and they can. And the reason is something that you, they grasp. You know, and also. There's a certain percentage, if they're on stage for, say, an hour, I think a certain percentage of that time, they just want to sound really good, like because it feels good. When you're on stage, it feels really good to sound good and to know you sound good, right? So if I were to, taking this example of 12-year-olds who can't play music, I would say, I would want to have a certain amount of stuff in there that they could play and feel really good about in just a conventional way, because it's going to make them feel happy to be on stage. But within that, I think you could find a balance between that and stuff that is really different and really adventurous and doesn't make them sound good in a conventional way. And I think it's just, you need to balance that. I think from a psychology perspective, but I think, you know, it's really intertwined with my own sensibility, aesthetically and stylistically. I actually prefer a kind of music that would balance that actually. Like I really like a kind of music that has a little bit of both worlds, you know, involved and has that interplay. So, to answer your question that could be done and it's a, for me a matter of balance in context
0: yeah i think what you just described was also a great way of articulating the problem that new music has certain types of new music is that the players don't know exactly how they're it's like they're supposed to suspend their belief and just assume that the composer has this grand vision mm-hmm. and the seventeen in the space of twenty-three in the space right. of like nested over nested over nested over nested that takes them forever to perform, and you know there's no psychological payoff for them mm-hmm. except for the fact that people in the audience, maybe some of them know that, yeah, because the composer is infamous or something like that, right. like yeah, a yeah, Fernie yeah, How piece yeah. or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. They, they know that they're looking at something impossible, and therefore, yeah, like that's the psychological get for them instead of I actually sound good and I know exactly where I'm fitting into this thing. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Yeah, it is hard. I mean, I think that it's a broader question than it's even bigger than just the, the crazy nested tuplet. Even if a piece has no extended techniques, no impossible rhythms, there's still this problem of interpretation, this problem of, like, what does this music mean? What am I saying with it? You know, so a performer with a piece that they played a lot, there's a certain amount of confidence they have in their interpretation. They, there's a sense that I know what this piece is, I know what, it's, what I'm trying to say with it, and I'm going to go out on, on stage and I'm going to say it. And with every new piece of music, no matter how hard or difficult it is, it's, there isn't that relationship. And I think that's a barrier for new music. It, it's a challenge. And, I mean, actually, this speaks to a point which is that the best thing that I can hope for are repeat performances, because when I get a work that's played you know four or five more and more times it's only by the same person it's only then that it really starts to be something that comes alive, yeah, you know the
0: third or yeah, the third or fourth time it, it, is when it clicks, yeah, and of course that makes sense they're going on stage one time and're not like it's impossible to get it right, but, yeah, you know the first time there's yeah. so many, especially in something like new music that is like every piece is different there's no common anything. So it, it takes them a while to get to the feel and for them to be able to adjust to the situation of a room and to know it well enough that they can actually nail it and interpret it.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, totally.
0: Well, is that it? I don't
1: know. Do you have another question? <laughs>
0: Did, well, it wasn't really a – I mean, yeah. Yeah. I don't think so. I think you can probably tell they didn't have questions. No, 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 yeah, definitely. Curi- just curious, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, uh, I have to do this. Okay. Okay, ready for a pause? Ready for a pause. Thanks for doing this. Oh, yeah, no problem. Okay, cool. Thank you. Uh, Was that (laughs) better? (laughs)